Take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Beginning in verse 1, I'm going to read down to verse 7 for us, okay? This is what it says. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a, it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they, sew, they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Let's pray one more time as our last session here for this glorious time that we've had. Let's pray together. Father, down to this very hour, even as we have studied so far, we are in a great conflict with our adversary. We know we understand that we who live in the overlap of the ages, that is this present evil age and the age to come, still will endure trial, tribulation, temptation, testing. Help us, Father, to understand the nature of the adversary, his tactics, his schemes. But more importantly, Lord, help us to see the victory of our great second and last Adam who conquered the devil and who will soon crush him under our feet. Give us wisdom, Father, as we consider both the fall and the victory of protology. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. That really is... Uh, the subject that, and the topic, and really the title of my sermon, The Fall and Victory of Protology. Dealing with the fall, of course, and dealing with the victory of Christ. And so I just wanted to sort of look a little bit closer at this chapter that encompasses the fall of man into sin. So important, so very, very important. Now, understand that as we come to the subject of protology, we come to the first few chapters of Genesis, we are coming, as if you have not noticed by now, we are coming with quite a few presuppositions. <laughs> we are coming from a very, uh, we're coming from a very informed biblical theology that is that we come to the pages of Genesis 1, 2, and 3, understanding what their deep biblical theological significance is in light of all of Scripture. 
And in light of all this scripture, what we know that stands behind what is going on in the fall of man and really of all protology is, is a great deal of theology that begins even before the first verse of the Bible begins. For example, we know that what stands behind the fall of man, what stands behind this initial protology promise that we get in Genesis 3.15, we know that there are already decrees of God. We know that there is already a plan, that God already has a sovereign plan to redeem a people what theologians call the covenant of redemption, this intra-Trinitarian covenant that God made with the Godhead in order to redeem His people from sin. And so I invite you, just quickly now, to turn to John chapter 17 as evidence of this covenant of redemption. Evidence of where it is and when it is that God made a commitment, a covenant with His Son to redeem a people for Himself through Jesus Christ. John 17, verses 1 through 5, is one of those passages that theologians turn to in order to to show us that there is, in fact, some formal agreement between Father and Son for the redemption of God's people. Jesus says in in John 17, 1, it says, Jesus spoke these things and He lifted His eyes up to heaven and He said, Father, speaking directly to the Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave Him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given Him, there are God's elect people from Genesis to Revelation, that He may give them eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth. Here it is here having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with Yourself with the glory which we had bef- that I had with You before the world was. Jesus was, at, was sent into this world to redeem us from the fall, from sin. Very basic. And that's what stands behind this whole Genesis account is that God had covenanted with His Son this agreement to redeem mankind. And so, but before we look at the victory of Christ, we have to see what is the occasion that stands behind the victory of Christ, which is, of course, the fall. What gave occasion to the fall? We look at it from a perspective of John 17, and this is what... um, This is why theologians like Jonathan Edwards have called it the Felix Culpa, the happy fall. It's a happy fall because it results in redemption. So seen from the standpoint of redemption, we understand that even in the context of the fall, God's good purposes are being accomplished. What's going on in Genesis chapter 3? Is it just a Sunday school story of, uh, you know, a, a pop-up color book where you have a little snake coming out of a tree and people are, you know, Adam and Eve, there they are in the garden playing or something? Or is there something far more sinister at work? I think it is. 
If you understand that Genesis chapter 2 is the backdrop of Genesis chapter 3, that's not hard, right? Genesis 2 goes before Genesis chapter 3. Look with me in Genesis chapter 2 verse 15. Because this is where theologians identify another covenant, which is called the covenant of works. Whether you believe that or not is really irrelevant. One of the things that we all should agree to is that there is an agreement that's made here in these verses. Then the Lord God took the man and he put him into the garden, in the garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. The Lord God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden you may freely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will die. And so covenant theologians identify a very basic structure in this passage that there are parties involved, that there's an agreement that's involved, and that there are sanctions involved, and there there are penalties involved to this agreement if you don't want to call it a covenant. Well, guess what? Later on in covenant history, what you find is that exact same basic structure in other covenants like the Mosaic Covenant. Blessing for obedience. Curse for disobedience. Very simple. They come from this. But something happens in chapter 3 that is really, really amazing. The fall of man has to do with breaking God's covenant order and defiling God's sanctuary. So that like Ezekiel, if you look at Ezekiel chapter 11, it's a very interesting parallel to Eden where you have God's covenant people breaking the covenant, God driving his people out of his sanctuary and stationing angels at the east side of the sanctuary. That's what's going on here. The sanctuary is being defiled by the intrusion of the serpent who we will call the anti-lord. It's not just a snake. This is not just a. This is not just a, 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 a illusion of the devil. This is not just a sleight of hand. This is Satan in this context setting himself diametrically opposed to the covenant maker, the covenant creator, and not just standing in opposition to him, as if that was bad enough. Satan is not just looking to oppose the covenant creator, but to usurp him and to replace him. Really fascinating. Language that is used here of guarding and keeping, as Joseph pointed out himself, this is priestly language that goes back to places like Numbers chapter 3, Numbers chapter 8, Numbers chapter 18, where again, the Hebrew language there of cultivating, keeping, guarding, that's all language of the priesthood. It's almost as if, if you understood the, the Pentateuch, you get to places like Numbers, you start saying, Lord, we're on to you. <laughs> because we recognize this language. This is what you used back in, in protology in the opening chapters of Genesis. Even Alan Ross, who is himself a dispensational theologian, uh, at least partially dispensational, he would even say that Adam and Eve were like archetypical Levites. Listen to what he says. He says, Adam and Eve were created to serve the Lord, not the ground. Uh, they were like priests who had the responsibility for the care of the divine institutions of the sanctuary. See, but because they reneged on their responsibility, their duties, the crafty deceiver was allowed to slither in to the sanctuary of God and engage in religious discourse with the woman. 
What follows in the text of Genesis is Satan, again, not simply trying to ruin God's plans, but to try to usurp him, to replace him as anti-Lord. He wants to be Lord. That's the point. It all begins with an assault on God's law. Genesis 3.1 The serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God created. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said. That is remarkable. Understand that the vast majority of people that you will ever meet in your life, evangelistically speaking, are not atheists. There are not people that have been deceived by the devil to think there is no God. There are people that you're going to meet like Hindus, like Buddhists, like Muslims that make up the vast majority of the population on planet Earth. And they're not deceived with there is no God. They are deceived with has God said. It's always an attempt to undermine and to question God's law. This was an assault, an assault on God's covenant command that he gave earlier. Remember, this is why I take you to Genesis 2. Because in verse 16 it says, The Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, commanded the man. You see that? There's the presence of his law. Because Eve was allowed, or because Eve allowed the serpent to speak his poisonous heresy. She begins to succumb to the noetic effects of deception brought about by Satan's sin, not Adam's. She's interacting with a, the source of deception itself. And it's caused her to add additional burdensome sanctions to God's covenant order. Did you notice that in verse 3? In verse 3 she says to the serpent, You shall not eat from it or touch it. Because she's engaged in a conversation with the devil, she has already began to distort God's covenant order. She's confused. She's being deceived. She's under deception. Notice also how the anti-Lord lifts a direct line out of the covenant in verse 5. You see that there? Look down at verse 5, 3, 5. It says, for God knows that in the day that you eat of it, that verse, right, that, that, uh, that line right there, For God knows in the day you eat from it. Look back at chapter 2, verse 17. From the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For, then you have almost an exact Hebrew phrase, in the day that you eat from it. This is the serpent quoting the command of the covenant and distorting it. He has a history of doing this, right? What did he do to Jesus? Cast yourself down, for it is written, he will send his angels to have charge over you, right? So he's distorting the psalmist in order to try to deceive Jesus, the last Adam, in his temptation, which of course he was unsuccessful. Praise the Lord, he was unsuccessful. What is the anti-Lord doing here? Let me give you several things that he's doing here. Notice, number one, he has replaced the sacramental tree of life. You notice that? 
The tree that would give life, the tree that stood for life, the tree that would grant life, meaning that the tree that would, that God would use as the occasion to confer life upon the man and the woman, everlasting righteousness, he substitutes the tree of life for the judgment tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because he says, you will not die. The other thing that he does is that he's beginning to change the woman's worldview. Notice what he says again, verse 5. You will not die, he says, but your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. All of a sudden, she has gone from Trinitarian monotheism to a monistic worldview where she can ascend to Godhood. Third, she also became primarily sensual, not spiritual. She began to be led by her eyes. You see that? Look at what it says here. Verse 6, The woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. So she stopped thinking God's thoughts according to Him, and she began to think, or at least attempt to think, autonomously according to to the flesh. No longer thinking primarily spiritually, she now became a empiricist. What she can touch, what she can taste, what she can feel. Instead of being led by the eyes of her heart, she was driven by the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the blasphemous boast of life. And number four, the result of the anti-Lord's deception was that As Meredith Klein has pointed out, Eve became a missionary of a new religion. Her husband would be her first convert. She deceived him to adopt the same worldview. This is the first cult. This is the first antichrist system. This is the first heretic heretics and heresy. Something else uh, should be pointed out here. If we remember the original Orthodox covenant in chapter 2, if the covenant sanctions were disobeyed, you remember what God says there? You will die. The penalty of the covenant breaking, of penalty of covenant breaking was death. Now, something more diabolical, I think, is at work here than Satan simply trying to kill these people. The diabolical logic works like this. I think that just as the devil was able to quote part of the, of the covenant of works, I think he knew the rest of it. And so I think he knew that if you broke the covenant, God would kill you. The diabolical logic of the anti-Lord works like this. Not that he would kill God's covenant community, but that once the covenant curse was activated, God would be oath-bound to destroy his own image bearers. Satan trying to use God's own law against him. The fall of this initial primitive covenant community was complete. 
The man and the woman died spiritually, if not covenantally, upon eating. And we're now under the same wrath and the same curse and the same anger and hostility that the anti-Lord was under himself when he was cast out of heaven and thrown down. So now, the glory of God that appeared at the dawn of creation with God's Spirit literally canopying over creation as He's hovering over creation. That same Spirit glory now appears not to create but to judge. Look with me at verse 8. Chapter 3, verse 8 says, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the panim, the, the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. What's going on here? Well, if you sat through any of my Sunday school classes, you know where I'm going with this, so, so allow me to be redundant today. <laughs> Most scholars have defined that phrase, that Hebrew phrase, the cool of the day, as somehow referring temporally to a part of the day. Uh, Keel and Dillich refer to it as the breezy part of the afternoon, of the evening. That's the way they'd interpret it. However, because the literal Hebrew phrase is literally the Ruach Yom, the spirit day, Other scholars are beginning to see some sort of literary parallel here between chapter 1, verse 2, and this instance of the Ruach here. So Meredith Klein, and I am tempted to agree with him, interprets this as the spirit of the day of judgment. That's the implication, because this is a glory theophany of God where He comes not to bless, but to curse And notice, the people are afraid of this presence. I think they're afraid of this presence not just because they were naked, but because they understood themselves to now be lawbreakers, covenant breakers, and now they feared the very presence of God that once brought them comfort. really is amazing. What happens then is that this spirit of the day is a prototypical day of the Lord. The fullness of this day of the Lord is seen in the return of Christ when He will return. And you can actually trace the Spirit with the, with the concept of the eschatological coming of God, the second coming, God's appearing in great glory and great power at, at several redemptive events that are They're they're pivotal in the history of redemption, like at Sinai, like at Pentecost, but ultimately in the parousia of our Lord Himself. Matter of fact, G.K. Beale agrees with this interpretation because he goes to Revelation chapter 6, verses 15 through 17, and says there's a direct parallel there with the second coming, the parousia of Jesus Christ, with what happened in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, as the people in Genesis 3, as Adam and Eve hid themselves from the glory of God, so too in Revelation chapter 6, verses 15 and 17, the whole earth will hide from the glory and the presence of God and the Lamb. And they will say, they won't hide just a among the trees but when christ returns what does it say they will hide in such that they will beg the mountains to fall on them 
They're going to go down into the nuclear bunkers with the preppers, the doomsday preppers, and try to hide from the presence of Jesus. But as futile as it was for Adam and Eve to hide, so too it will be absolutely futile in the day of His wrath for mankind to hide from God. And all of mankind is, a, is in, in this covenant-breaking state. Isn't it amazing? Uh, I, I wrote a book on this somewhere. Everyone is either in Adam or in Christ. And if you are still in Adam, God, whether you like it or not, God still looks at you covenantally under the leadership, headship, under the representation, over the, under the covenant representative, Adam. Isn't that amazing? That's why Paul says all the way thousands of years later in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 21 and 22, in Adam all die. God is still looking at humanity with their Adamic connection. See, doesn't matter if you try to hide. It doesn't matter if you try to uh, uh, make excuses. We know the story. Everyone's making excuses here, right? God comes in judgment and they said, and when God questions them, notice verse, uh, in verse 11 it says, Who told you that you were naked? Now, now, when he does that, what's going on here is that God is bringing a covenant lawsuit upon these people. That's exactly what he does to Israel and the minor prophets. He brings questions. He, 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 he's, he's on a mission to survey, to assess, and to bring uh, a execution in a judicious fashion. And he does that often by questioning them. It's not as if God is ignorant. I think that's probably our, our first impression when we read Genesis. We think God has taken a stroll down the down a park somewhere in the Garden of Eden. He's whistling along and he just stumbles across the, the man and the woman and he just ignorantly asks, hey, what happened here? But the omniscient God of the universe, the God of all wisdom, of all knowledge, who created everything, he doesn't need to be informed. You think he's asking for a different reason? You better believe it. He's asking them because they are covenant breakers and he wants to confront them. And they are confronted. They hear his voice. They hear the sound of him walking. Uh, that Hebrew word for God to walk in this verse, mithalek, is actually used in the minor prophets. Again, like in Zechariah, it's also used in Job. When God sends out spirits, which are probably references to the angels, to go out on surveillance watch and to go and prosecute his judgments. That's probably what's happening here. God is coming in his glory cloud, as it were, with his spirit. And if you just connect this initial primitive epiphany of the Spirit of God and how it develops throughout redemptive history, then you see that the Spirit is connected with clouds, with thunder, with lightning. The sound is terrifying. People turn away from the sound. They can't bear the sound. You remember even, in a, even at Sinai, picked up in Hebrews chapter 12, where the author of Hebrews says that Moses, the people begged him that no more words would be spoken to them they couldn't handle the power of the epiphany of God when he comes in his glory that's what's happened 
Adam and Eve under condemnation. So what I want to do is transition now. I want to transition from the fall to the victory of the Son of God. And you know where I'm going for the victory of the Son of God. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Read it with me. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the heel, and you shall bruise him on he shall, uh, and you will bruise him on the heel. There we go. What's going on there? Of course we know this is talking about the cross. Fast forward, right? But I think what happens in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, what, what do we call this, by the way? We've already said it. This is the first gospel. What is the gospel? What is the gospel? You join our church, you sit in membership, uh, and we ask you in our membership class, we ask you, what is the gospel? We want to see how good you are at defining the gospel. The gospel. Your life is the gospel from here on out till you die. It's going to be about the gospel. You're going to have to know the gospel, live the gospel, obey the gospel, preach the gospel, share the gospel, understand the gospel, teach the gospel. You better know the gospel. Let me suggest to you that what we have in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 is a very primitive biblical theology of the dual estates of Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. So what I want to do is I want to show you evidence in the New Testament that shows us that how God is going to have victory over the serpent, over our adversary, over the anti-Lord is through his dual estates. What is the gospel? The gospel begin in Matthew chapter 1? Of course not. We're here in Genesis 3. (laughs) Um, Turn to Romans chapter 1 for the first passage of Scripture that we have to look at in order to come to the settled conclusion, brothers and sisters, that the gospel rightly defined is an intratestamental gospel that is organically consistent and harmonious from cover to cover. And in Romans chapter 1 is one of those instances that not only proves that, but also gives us the evidence of the dual estates of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son. So stop right there, right? Um, If we begin to define what is the gospel and the very first thing that you talk about is man, you've already skipped the most important part. The gospel begins not with a reference to sinful man. The gospel begins with, as he says here, concerning his son. It is a Christocentric gospel. And it says, Who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Two things are happening right there. You notice that? He was born as a descendant of David according to the flesh. Now you know that flesh is being compared to power in verse 4. According to the flesh, 
who was declared to be the Son of God with power, watch this, by the resurrection from the dead, watch this, according to the spirit of holiness, according to the flesh, according to the spirit of holiness. What is Paul saying? What does the flesh represent there? His humanity? So what does the spirit represent in verse 4? According to the spirit. His deity? No. He never stopped being divine. He wasn't resurrected as divine. That's heresy. Jesus never stopped being divine. When it says spirit, it is synonymous with power. You see that? So when it says flesh, it is referring to the state of incarnate humility. Weakness. Weakness, power, flesh, spirit. These are two sessions of Jesus. Two estates. Two modes of His coming. He comes in weakness and He will come in power. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, because what is being committed here, and maybe y'all can go back and study it a little bit further, but what is really being presented to us here is not only two states, but I would say two ages and two realms. Especially as you go further into 1 Corinthians chapter 15, especially after verse 45, when it says that we will bear the, we have borne the image of the earthly and we will bear the image of the heavenly. By the time we attain to resurrection power, we have been transferred into another realm. But let's go, let's digress back here. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 1 through 4. These are real simple, commonly known, understood. Many of you can recite this from memory. And once again, an intratestamental gospel is presented that focuses on the dual estates of Jesus Christ. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which I, which you, which you also, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For, I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received. Here it is. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. This is nothing new. Christ dying for our sins according to the Scriptures. And of course, by this time in the 50s and A.D., what is the Scriptures? What are the graphe at this point in time? The Old Testament Scriptures. And that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So once again, you have the scriptures giving us an intratestamental gospel that focuses on the dual estates of Jesus coming in weakness and then ascending or ex- be a, a resurrecting, rising in power and exaltation. How's the devil going to be defeated? Through the dual estates of Christ. One more. Hebrews chapter 1. These are so easy, right? (laughs) Easy to remember. Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. (laughs) 1 through 4, 1 through 4, 1 through 4. Okay, real simple. Now you got the theology right there. 
Verse 1. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, were in the same territory. In many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in His Son, who He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. You want to talk about going back to Genesis? <laughs> and He is the radiance of His glory, the exact representation of His nature. And He upholds all things by the word of His power when He had made purification for sins. Watch this. When He had made purification for sins. When did He make purifications for sins? In His state of exaltation? No. In His state of humiliation. In His first session. In His state of humility and weakness. He made purification for sins. And then watch the state of exaltation. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. An intertestamental gospel that focuses on the dual estates of Christ that goes back to Genesis chapter 1 or chapter 3 that says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him not in a state of exaltation, you will not, only in a state of humiliation, in a state of weakness, in an incarnate state, prior to the resurrection, will you bruise him on the heel. I want to tell you that several things can be concluded from this. Um, number one, what it means is that victory over the serpent will take place only through conflict. Because it says, I will put enmity. I will put enmity. The conflict of the fall is seen immediately after the fall. Did you notice? Immediately after the fall, man is now in a hostile relationship with God. God is questioning him. Man is trying to skirt his responsibility. Man is even blaming God. Adam says, the woman, Lord, that you gave me. They're in a hostile relationship with one another. He's blaming her. They, the marriage is on the rocks. Because he didn't lead her right. As a priest king unto his God, he didn't protect his home. By the way, I know that a lot, we've been doing so much theological heavy lifting here. I, I know that. But think of the practical implications of this for our own marriage, right? That's coming next for our church anyway. Practical theology. We've had so much rich, high theology that we do need some practical. Not that it's not high, good, sound. But uh, we need to take all of this and make it practical just like this. Their hostility resulted so that it affected the marriage relationship. The hostility from the fall resulted such that you need to watch. You've got to be on your guard on the way to church and on the way back from church. Can I get an amen? <laughs> That's right. The seed of the serpent is represented now because the conflict is also with the serpent. And the seed of the serpent is represented now by all of fallen humanity who continues to identify with the rebellion of the serpent in the present evil age. What Paul, listen to, listen to this, 
what Paul calls the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit. Some would say that is the disposition. Some would say that's Satan. Of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. That is how the hostility is now manifested. But this conflict is also only overcome by and through Christ. That is, Christ himself succeeds where Adam fails. He passes temptation. He passes the test. He passes probation. And unlike Adam, Jesus actually obeyed to the point of fulfilling all righteousness. And I know that this is all rudimentary and fundamental, and this is all very basic truth to many of us in this room. But let me tell you something. If you still see yourself as another Adam you still haven't gotten it. You ever see yourself as another Adam, another Eve? You're in probation right now. It all depends on you. Are you going to pass the test? We immediately revert to a workspace righteousness if we're not careful to understand that the last Adam, Jesus Christ, only He is the second Adam. Only he is the last Adam. It doesn't call him the second Adam. It calls him the last. Meaning there will be no other Adams after that. This is so liberating if you can grasp it. If you can, if you can really wrap your brain around it. This is so liberating. Because what it means is I don't need to walk around like a little Adam in the garden that I wake up and I'm in, I'm in probation again. To see, is righteousness going to be conferred upon me on the basis of my obedience? That is not your job. The doctrine of justification is based on this, that we are not the last Adam. But that because the last Adam obeyed perfectly, passed probation, he was confirmed in his uh, fulfilling of all righteousness, he can now, as John 17 said, give freely eternal life to all of those that the Father has given to Him. It just goes on and on and on. But it also means that the only way victory over the serpent is going to happen is through suffering. I love Christianity. Do you know how many false worldviews I interact with on a weekly basis because I am so blessed to be called to college ministry. <laughs> Y'all may not think it's a blessing when I'm up on that box. It is a blessing. And I have the blessing of standing up on a little $9, six-inch stool from Walmart and listen to college students spew their worldviews at me. But you know what they are? They're not realistic. They're illusions. They're figments of their imagination. Why can't we just all love each other? Well, I had a nickel for every time I heard that. Why can't we just all get along and just accept one another in a postmodern way where no one is wrong and no one is right? Right? It's not reality. Right? Um, suffering is real. How many of you can testify to that? Suffering is real. And the Son of God only through suffering 
would defeat the serpent. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2 for a text that has already been quoted, but I want to quote a few more. Something about Hebrews, guys. I can't get away from it. That's for my church because I'm preaching through Hebrews right now. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death. He was crowned with glory and honor. There it is again, the dual estates of Christ. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him from whom are all things that through who uh, and through whom are all things to bring many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering suffering is at the very heart of what Jesus came to do when people come and talk to you about Jesus and they want to talk to you about what he's done and who he is and what he offers Don't forget to talk about His suffering. He came to suffer. People want a Dr. Phil Jesus. They want an Oprah Winfrey Jesus. They want a contemporary, postmodern, relativistic, cool, hip, trendy, acceptable, tolerant, politically correct Jesus. And what's our biblical response? He came to suffer. And suffering's not cool. And suffering's not popular. And suffering is not going to gather a big following. But you know who will? The postmodern, all-inclusive, liberal Jesus that just does not exist. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. What an amazing verse about the incarnate Christ. And having been made perfect, i.e. through suffering, which uh, the perfection of the Son of God is speaking of His exaltation now to the right hand of the Father. He became to all those who obey Him the source of eternal salvation. Can't be any clearer right there in that passage. The dual estates of Christ. Only through coming and suffering and being perfected, which means being exalted, only through the the, the, the dual estates, the suffering and exaltation of Jesus, can, does He then become the source of eternal salvation. Chapter 9, verse 26. Otherwise, He would have needed to suffer since the foundation of the world But now, once at the consummation of the ages, He has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. Final point. Exaltation. And we've talked about this a little before, but I want to remind you. Look at Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, same thing. Now we're looking at Christ in His heavenly session. Every priest, Hebrews 10, 11, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But He, having offered him, offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until His enemies be made a footstool for His feet. It is not until Jesus reaches His heavenly session 
That all of his enemies, including the serpent, will be subdued. Including the curse will be subdued. Including our trials will be subdued. Including our suffering will be subdued. Including our cancer will be subdued. Including our accidents and catastrophes that we go to. And our hurricanes and our tornadoes and our earthquakes will be subdued. What Genesis 3 prepares us for is the victory of the last Adam through his dual estates where the anti-lord, the serpent, the devil, will be finally crushed under his feet. And I want to leave you today with hope, brothers and sisters. So turn with me to Romans chapter 16 as I give you this tiny little prescription by Paul. Or uh, just a, uh, a precept, a truth. Romans 16.20, because we're drawn into this. And, God, and, and, and Paul goes back to protology to encourage us. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Doesn't that feel good? I can't crush Satan under my feet. Oh, the prosperity, the name it and claim it, the whole, you know, battle with the devil. That whole expression of Christianity is so ungodly. You devil, I cast you under the... Boy, aren't you something. I'm sure the devil is just sweating bullets. What does Jude say? No way. I'm not contending with the devil. Lord rebuke you. Notice here, the Lord will rebuke him. It doesn't say you will soon crush Satan under your feet. It says God will crush Satan under your feet. He will soon do it. He will soon bring the eschatological fulfillment of Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 and crush Satan under our feet once and for all. One last place, 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, because in the dual estates of Christ, not that we are Christ, not that our lives are redemptive in any way whatsoever, not that we atone for anyone, not that the final victory is conditional upon our performance, our obedience, or any of the sort. But we have in the dual estates of Christ a pattern for our own lives, a paradigm that you and I need to be ready for. First Peter chapter 2, verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose. What purpose? To persevere through suffering. Just look at the earlier verses there. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. What's going to happen after the election? Is Hillary Clinton and her antichrist troops going to come storming through the, your neighborhood? Take away your guns and your Bibles? Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> Joseph even told me, you better talk about Trump because I'm not talking about Trump. <laughs> But even if that happens, guess what? Even if that happens, if that happens, first of all, we will finally join the great majority of the church on planet Earth. Not that we, 
I know why you clap, but not that we want that to happen. We certainly never want that to happen. But let's get real. I have a friend who works with Muslims, um, who does some of the most amazing stuff on Islamic apologetics. He fellowships with believers all over the world. American Christianity is just one slice of his fellowship with believers. And last couple years ago, he sent me uh, reports of persecution of churches that he would know just as well as us sitting in this room right now. And he knows them. He knows the pastors. He, he said, it'd be, it'd be like walking into Heritage Grace and, oh, there's Pastor Emilio and there's Trish. You know. The only difference is, is that these churches that he's talking about, they're in the Congo. And he sent me pictures of the church that had been hacked to pieces by the Muslims. Man, woman, and child. Real pictures of his friends. Christianity is about reality. It's not a pie in the sky. It is not some therapeutic spirituality that we're after. We are called to suffer, but the good news is is that when we suffer, don't forget the pattern. Don't forget the steps that we are following in His steps. Look at verse 22. Who took up the political cause and began to rally for His candidate. No. Who committed no sin nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, and the church is reviled, and may be increasingly so, he did not revile in return all of those filthy liberal. But he kept entrusting himself. He made no threats, uttering no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And therefore, Paul and Peter and Luke and Jude and James and the apostles call us time and time again to commit our way to Him who will soon crush Satan under our feet. Let's pray. Father, we could go on and there's so much to talk about in this glorious subject and I know that we left so much unsaid and so much more could have been done here. But Lord, would you take our feeble efforts and any truth that is truly true, seal it to the heart of your people, your church. Transform our lives by the truths of biblical theology in protology. Transform our lives by the notion that you are creating a new creation and that we have the first fruits of that new creation even now. Transform our lives by the notion that it is our job as image bearers of God to reflect your glory, to spread the glory of God to the ends of the earth. Transform our lives by the truth that Jesus, the seed of the woman, will soon crush Satan under our feet. We need Your Spirit in order to do this, Lord. We can't do this in our own strength. We have no strength. And so we begin by confessing our poverty. And we say, Lord, in and of ourselves, we are nothing and less than that. 
We need Your strength. Increase our faith. Increase our zeal. Let it begin with the simple things. Our commitment to Your Word. Our commitment to Your church. Our commitment to the family of God. Our commitment to the Gospel. Our commitment to evangelism. Our commitment to raise godly children for the glory of God. Our commitment to love our spouse with sacrificial love. Our commitment to have homes that are glorifying and honoring to You. Help If it doesn't begin there, then it probably won't ever begin. Help us, Lord, by faith. Give us strength, God. Give us strength. Thank You, Lord, for being such a glorious Alpha and Omega God. We pray all these things in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together and close.